You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad and earlier in the year I attended the Global Irish Civic Forum and I had the opportunity then to bump into Morris Fitzpatrick who advised me at that time that he was uh, coming to completion on a documentary on John Hume and uh, John Hume is the perspective of uh, John Hume's life and how influential he was in the peace process and changing of attitudes and he has now delivered on the documentary and it is going to be screened at the European Union Film Festival in Vancouver and Ottawa in Ottawa on the 26th at 4.45 and that's at the National Gallery and in Vancouver on the 3rd of December. I'm delighted to be able to welcome Morris to the show and say congratulations first of all Morris on a job well done. My pleasure Austin, thank you very much. A labour of, I would say, anything like this is a labour of love but also an education process and a learning process. Yeah, I think those two assertions are quite accurate. It was a labor of love in that I got hooked on a, on a subject uh, related to dairy. I'd made a previous film in, in, on a dairy theme in a school in Derry where John Hume and Seamus Heaney and several others attended. And... Um, they were the first generation to receive mass education in Northern Ireland. So the idea behind that particular film and book was that uh, through getting this education, they started to demand change in their society when they came of age in the late 60s and formed the civil rights movement. So I saw clearly that John Hume's role in, uh, as an agent for change in Northern Ireland was uh, was crucial from the get-go. But I also saw through talking to John Hume in an interview that uh, the Washington, D.C. dimension to his political life was crucially important. And when I start to look for leads and look for um, research done on the subject, there was scant little. There certainly is no, no book extant. So I started to work on, on making a film and making a documentary film and, making a, and writing a book on this subject, both of which are now uh, released. So the, the book is in, in bookshops and the film is about to be released in Irish cinemas. By Irish, I mean North and South. Um, on Friday coming, Friday the 17th of November. So it's exciting times and the, the book and the film are about to to be um, uh, released. Morris, you mentioned it's going to be released both sides of the border and in any aspect of history, people are perceived very differently from different sides. So consequently, a movie like this, uh, when you have it released in the north of Ireland particularly, um, has there been any initial reaction from what would be the unionist side to your representation of John Hume. Well, I should state that so far in, on the island of Ireland, the film is only screened twice. It has screened in the Galway Film FLA, that was a world premiere, and then it screened just last Sunday in the, in the uh, Cork Film Festival. Uh, so it hasn't really, as it were, been unleashed <laughs> in uh, Ireland, and it has, certainly hasn't screened in Northern Ireland, but that is about to change. And I'm intrigued to, to see what kind of response it will have um, even though it's screened 
in in Galway in, in July, even so, there were there was pickup from northern journalists and uh, television and so on, and they they did pick up on the representation of John Hume, particularly after his career and the way in which, to some extent, he has been um, brushed aside by. Uh, rivals within the nationalist tradition in the north. The unionist response, to answer your question by a roundabout way, um, I'm, there hasn't really been one yet, and it will screen in the heart of Belfast, in the cinema, in Kennedy Centre, so let's see, it'll also screen in Oma, it'll screen in Enniskillen, uh, Balamina, which is... Um, more uh, unionist than nationalist. So let's see what uh, the unionist community make of it. Uh, so far, I couldn't tell you. Now, you mentioned that you had already done a, a documentary on St. Columbus in, in Derry, where John Hume had been a student. But when John Hume graduated and entered into his career, he was very much a believer in the peace process from day one, and that the civil rights movement was to be a peaceful method of trying to implement change. Yeah, absolutely. He was, from day one, from his first public, his rise to public prominence in Northern Ireland, he was a campaigner for change, but resolutely through peaceful means. Uh, a good example is the University for Derry campaign. It, to me, it seems to unite uh, several strands of John Hume's thinking and his principles namely that uh, the city of Derry is very deserving of uh, inward investment and a sucker from the government, um, a site of education, place of learning and place of uh, innovation. They would support that and, of course, um, the jobs that would flow from it. So he was always, this, he was always an innovative character, but um, by, by getting involved in some of these initiatives and seeing the way in which they could be foiled by a very inflexible government, he saw that he needed to get into politics. And I would just slightly modify the, the phrase used there, the peace process. He got involved in the political process, and there is, I suppose, a crucial difference because um, he, he did meet with a great deal of aggression and a great deal of... Um, intransigence from the, the Parliament of Northern Ireland, uh, both outside it before he got involved in politics and then within it when he was elected MP. And even so, he persisted. He continually believed and advocated the need for a political process in Northern Ireland. This was long before there was what became known as the Troubles. So the peace process is, is a phrase often used describe what the talks in the 1990s chaired by uh, Senator George Mitchell and with the, the oversight of uh, General John de Chastelain and, and many others. But um, Hume is a, star, a very strong believer in the political process from the get-go. And he was instrumental, I suppose, then in the formation of uh, what would have been the political voice of nationalism on the, in the political arena. Yeah, that's fair to say with a few qualifications. He, when he got elected first, this is February 69, he sought a mandate to create a new party, a new movement, and um, 
he was very clear that the in his writings, if you go back even to 1964, he was very clear that the old cliches and the old dogmas of the Nationalist Party, which was particularly prominent in Derry City, uh, they had no appeal and then they had starkly uh, deficient success rate. And Hume was advocating a, another way, a third way. And yes, he clear from his writings, he um, is a proud Irishman and he didn't believe that by um, accepting the reality of partition that he was thereby any the less nationalist or republican than some people, but what he was anxious to do was to assert the need for practicality within politics. You know, it's one thing to, uh, to say to fiery and um, dispossessed young men, well, you know, let's fight for Ireland. It's another thing to actually develop that part of Ireland where you are you're standing and use the political process to create new political structures. So, Morris, you would have perceived that, and you mentioned a few moments ago, that in many ways John Hume's contribution um, in many ways was overlooked or the depth and strength of his contribution has been overlooked in the uh, story being told of the North of Ireland. Mm. It's a view that the people responding to the, the initial screening in Ireland uh, latched on to. Yeah, it's, it's a view I certainly share and it's something that comes through in uh, the last chapter in the epilogue that I, on the book I just wrote, I, I do I do address the way in which John Hume has been both consciously and unconsciously written, not written out of history, but his role um, his role diminished somewhat by by some people. And apart from being a, a gross injustice to a, a person who uh, continually campaigned for. In fact, the, the political realities that we have today, the, the, the fact of power sharing, I mean, I know Stormont is currently suspended, but um, so many of the concepts and so many of the political realities that we have today in the North uh, were very much either off John Hume's making or he had a very central um, uh, part in, in co-creating them. So it's, it's certainly unjust. It's also... I think important to remember that the North had a long, long period of trial and error, and more error than, than uh, most places, in fact. And finally, the formula that seemed to work, albeit um, with many, many uh, splutters and many, many potholes along the way, but even so, there was uh, a power-sharing executive in Stormont firm more than a decade and um, you know this was something that Hume believed in this was something that even in, in the short-lived Parshang executive of 74 go back that far he um, he described the, the the way in which that was sabotaged as a tra as a tragedy for the people of Northern Ireland I think he's been vindicated and I think therein lies an important lesson for people who cast their vote in Northern Ireland, be it in Westminster elections or internal Northern Irish elections, when you return 
political leaders, uh, it's important to remember exactly what they stand for and important to remember the, the bitter history that preceded uh, the possibility of politics in Northern Ireland. To that end, um, John Hume recognised that in order to really implement change, he needed to reach across the Atlantic and that the influences of the uh, Irish diaspora would be tremendously beneficial. That's right. And he did so in a very unique way. In, in many different strands of life, uh, there is this possibility of reaching out to places like Toronto, Vancouver, Chicago, New York, Boston. But what John Hume did was quite a, a quite unprecedented in Irish history in that he went to the heart of political Washington and he perceived that that was a, a crucial new element to bring to the equation, the way in which he could <clears throat> marshal the support of the House of Representatives and the, and the Senate, and ultimately then the White House. This was something that Irish leaders before him had never succeeded in doing, and indeed not many of them had really, didn't seem to have dawned on them to try. And Hume was this, in the, in the eyes of people like Tip O'Neill, Ted Kennedy, uh, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, he was an authentic figure because he was taking risks on the ground. He was absolutely consistent in, in what he was advocating and he was tremendously skilled in um, the way he advocated, the way he, he was elected to London, uh, Westminster Parliament, I mean, and uh, to Europe. And he could perform so well there and he became for senior politicians in the United States a very reliable touchstone. And consequently he was able to engage them to participate in um, using their influence for change. Yeah that's right he was at crucial moments able to control the agenda coming from Washington, coming from the Congress and uh, the White House in in a kind of a, an act of a puppet master. So it, it was one thing for him to go and meet, let's say, the, the Prime Minister of Britain in the 80s, Margaret Thatcher. It was one thing for him to go to 10 Downing Street, remonstrate with her, put forward a case of what, was, what changes were needed in Northern Ireland, and he did. But it was another thing to be able to pull the lever of Congress, as I say, and to persuade Tip O'Neill to make interventions and to negotiate on a quid pro quo basis with, with uh, the president at the time, uh, Ronald Reagan, um, so that Tip was, was uh, nudging Reagan towards a certain um, pathway in Northern Ireland. And uh, that was something that the great ally and the great friend and so on, Britain, could not ignore. And ultimately, well, when you look at the history, there was this uh, fundamental agreement between London and Dublin on, on how to handle the North, and that happened in 85. The Anglo-Irish Agreement uh, just could not have happened without the Americans. Now, John Hume went on uh, to be awarded a Nobel Peace Prize along with David Trimble. And um, the, uh, I suppose that 
represents some recognition of a major recognition of the influence that he had had but in putting together a documentary <coughs> what of course you would be seeking to achieve which you successfully did was to get contemporaries and people who had dealt with John uh, to reflect and express how the, his influence had changed things in Ireland and in the north of Ireland um, you were able to um, garner a large number of people willing to share their experiences. Yeah, that's right. Uh, certainly there's a, there's a considerable cast in the film. Uh, Americans uh, from the Senate and House and uh, two U.S. presidents are also in the film, um, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. And then uh, British Prime Ministers, Irish Tishi. So there's quite a, a lineup of people and uh, they all, you know, have their view on John Hume. It was quite a, an interesting experience to meet them all and to gather their testimonies. And that was what I was going to put in in meeting them all and getting their perspectives. Um, what would you say in that process surprised you mo the most? Well, I should say there was a long lead-up process to before they, the the cameras rolled. So I'd done quite a bit of reading, quite a bit of research, and. I don't know, I was terribly surprised by any particular testimony, but I do remember making more room in the film and in the book I wrote uh, for the media. And I think the media was a really crucial aspect of the new agenda that John Hume was determined to set in the United States and then rebounding from the United States to places like Northern Ireland, to Britain, to Ireland. Um, that was uh, really, really important, to, the way in which you would get to editorial boards, people who wrote op-ed columns, and uh, who could influence the readership in, um, through the mass media. That was something that I, I decided to prioritize, to show how key publications, be it the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, several others, and key news news anchors and um, news programs in in America suddenly became a good deal more informed about Northern Ireland and a good deal less inclined to embrace the old uh, and easy cliches about how best to resolve a rather complex issue. So it was probably a surprise to me that when I started to dig quite how much there was to say about the media, about the role of the media, and I thought that there was a way then to portray the media, which is currently, uh, you know, it, it's not in its best uh, in its, in its finest hour, but there's a way to show the media as exercising a very, very um, beneficial and intelligent role in what was a very prickly conflict. So it would be fair to say then also that John Hume recognized that the end game was both strategic and long-term and tedious rather than um, expedient and uh, it could be something that was going to happen very, very quickly. Well, he did realize that uh, the resolution for the political ills of Northern Ireland required 
strategizing, re-strategizing. Um, how quickly that could come about did depend on a number of variables. I mean, I think it's not the case that history runs on wheels. It's one thing to say, you look back and there were 30 years of troubles. Were, was that it was 30 years of troubles inevitable? I mean, I don't think, I certainly wouldn't advocate that position. I don't think John Hume would either, based on what I'm trying to recollect now of his writings. I, I think he would have um, been very, very determined in the in the proposals he had mapped out from from the get go, and I think he would have um, been very determined to. He always was very determined to align himself with political means because he believed very, very firmly uh, that when these violent attacks would happen, when innocent people and town centres were, when innocent people would be killed or town centres would be bombed. I mean, he just saw that as a, a tremendous futility as well as a tremendous sadness, uh, a futility that just prolonged the point at which, yes, we have to sit down at the conference table, hammer out a deal, and then get on with things. He was, in that respect, entirely right. And the... The futility and the longevity of the of the troubles is something that, when you reflect on it, uh, when you reflect on the um, perpetrators, not only for not only the way in which they perpetrated these crimes, but they continued to do so. This is something I treated a little bit in the in the book. They continued to stick to their guns. I mean, unfortunate metaphor there. Um, they continued to uh, advocate that their means were the, were the correct means, and ultimately, uh, they they just had called it wrong, and they, and they they had to get round the conference table and hammer out a political solution. So, Morris, um, this they normally you would maybe have somebody produce a, a movie after a book has been written. Uh, you've done the movie first and are finalising the, the book. Um, a little unusual? Hmm. Well, it seems to be true to form with me because uh, with the boys of St. Collins I did the film first and then I got my skates on to get the book ready for to tie in with the, with the release of the film. And there are many ways in which that's unfortunate. It means uh, sleep deprivation and whatnot, but it also means that you come to the writing of a book with um, the whole film and editing process having percolated down into your awareness. And it's something you can draw on. It's um, material you're very familiar with. And there are a few advantages. I'd say it's a, excuse a metaphor of a, of a horse race. There are times when the film is up ahead. There are other times when the book has to get its nose ahead as well, and ultimately you have to get them across the finishing line at roughly speaking the same time. And that's exactly what has happened because the, the film has just hit the, sorry, the book has just hit the, the bookshops and the film is going on general release this Friday. Fantastic. Well, as you say, it's general release uh, on your side of the Atlantic on Friday. It's here in Ottawa on the 26th, and that's at the National Gallery in the EU Film Festival. 16.45 is the time. And uh, you can get information on that uh, 
at the Canadian Film Institute website because that's where the details are, the EU film. And also then out in Vancouver on, was we said, the 3rd of December. That's right. Uh, 3rd of December. And you'll get details on the Canadian Institute, the Film Institute details around there also, as far as I recall. Um, so uh, congratulations again, Morris. It's been fantastic chatting with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing the movie and uh, now that I've had the opportunity to chat, I know it will be an awful lot more meaningful watching it. Well, thanks to you, Austin, and thanks to uh, all my Canadian friends. I should credit uh, people like Paddy Slater and Paddy Fay out in um, Vancouver doing huge work, and, um, and indeed people in, the, in Ottawa and, and Toronto. So I hope it all goes well. Indeed. Well, thank you, Morris. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Austin.